Hello, this is the Consciousness Podcast, and I'm your host, Stuart Preston. Each episode, I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. In this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Dr. Katrin Preller, a visiting assistant professor at Yale Medical School and a team member of the Department of Psychiatry, Psychotherapy, and Psychosomatics at the University of Zurich, where she received her PhD in psychology and neuroscience. Her research interests are centered around the neuropharmacology of emotional and cognitive processes, such as social cognition in health and psychiatric illnesses, as well as neuroimaging analysis methodology, including studies with psilocybin and LSD. We had a great conversation and covered neuropharmacology and LSD, altered states of consciousness, and even a little philosophy. Please enjoy this episode with Dr. Katrin Preller. Dr. Preller, thank you so much for joining me today here on the Consciousness Podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, obviously, when you talk about consciousness, uh, psychedelics and specifically LSD and psilocybin tend to make their way into the conversation. So I'd like to just start off and, um, you know, welcome you and, and ask you, you know, what, why your interest in LSD and psilocybin and altered states of consciousness? Well, first of all, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited about um, doing this and having this conversation. And to your okay. question, um, well, there are actually many interesting things about um, psychedelics and what they can tell us about um, consciousness uh, in particular, but also about the brain in general. And I, I think, first of all, um, psychedelics are a very safe way for us to um, help us understand how the brain works because they allow us to manipulate specific processes and specific functions that are otherwise really hard to study because we cannot change them. And by changing things, um, that actually makes it possible to, to investigate them in the first place. So I'm talking, for example, about alterations in, in self-perception, for example. Very hard to study if you cannot you know, manipulate them in any way. And psychedelics allow us to do that in a, in a pretty safe way um, and in a way where we can then find out what is going on in the brain if changes like these occur. And the second interesting part about uh, this is obviously, as um, I, I imagine uh, most of, of the listeners have heard, is that psychedelics might also have clinical potential. And I mean, this is yeah. terribly exciting, of course, um, investigating the clinical potential of these substances. And of course, then um, psychedelics induce this altered state of consciousness, which again makes them invaluable for us to understand, you know, the brain mechanisms behind altered states of consciousness. Yeah, wonderful. And it's, uh, I don't want to steal your joke, but one thing I, I saw in one of your videos I thought was funny is, is what did the Swiss know about LSD anyway? <laughs> yeah, that is very true. I'm very lucky to be working in an environment and in a country where research on psychedelics has this, you know, long-term tradition with the discovery of LSD um, happening in, in Basel, so basically just a few miles from here. And mm -hmm. um, in, in contrast to many other countries, uh, research on psychedelics never stopped really in Switzerland. And obviously this Wonderful. creates a very unique environment to do this kind of work. Yeah, outstanding. I wish, I wish we had continued our research, but there's a lot of great um, momentum going on here also with this finally after the debacle of the 
the late 60s, early 70s. So, um, so I know most of what you studied is, is covered uh, LSD and psilocybin. What, what about other psychedelics? Have you looked at those? And, and, and if not, why did you choose not to also include those? So it kind of depends a little bit on what kind of substances you, you're referring to. Um, we have conducted research with other psychoactive compounds like MDMA, which is not necessarily mm -hmm. a classical psychedelic. Um, in terms of, you know, serotonergic psychedelics, um, I mean, we have DMT, for example, so the main active compound of ayahuasca, but mm -hmm. this is a little bit harder to study and, and um, because, well, ayahuasca itself, as, as you know, is a tea, so it does not necessarily always contain the same ingredients, the same active compounds, which kind of makes it a little bit more difficult for us to then draw conclusions about what exactly is happening in the brain. And a lot of other psychedelics are not necessarily um, approved for human use. So um, LSD and psilocybin are really the ones where which we can um, most easily work with in humans. Okay. All right, that makes sense. Um, so now I'm going to get into part of this that um, it, it may be over my head but I found it, I think, central to what you're doing. So you found in your studies that LSD alters the directed connectivity within the CSTC pathways in human brains. And that sounds like a very neuroscientist question to ask. And so can you explain uh, what that means and what significance that has? Yes. So the CSTC, so the corticostriatal salamic cortical pathways, they form a, a major and very important loop in the brain, um, which is thought to be involved in, you know, conscious processing of our environment, but is also um, probably disturbed in psychiatric disorders, such as, for example, schizophrenia. So basically what um, the, or the model that first kind of introduced the idea of CTSC loops being involved in the effects of psychedelics, what they suggested is that the thalamus, which is a region in our brain, which is usually gating or filtering um, the stimuli that we perceive in our environment, but also um, when we kind of look internally about what's happening in you know, our emotional system, in our body, etc. So basically the thalamus is usually gating the information coming from inside and outside into our cortex, into our brain, um, which then allows for you know, con conscious perception, for example. Um, and Mark Geyer and Franz Vollenweider, they suggested that the thalamus is not able to gate this information as it normally does under the influence of psychedelics. And this then leads to a sensory overload of the cortex, which then, you know, induces the psychedelic effects. And um, that model, until we ran that particular study, um, that model had never been tested in humans experimentally. And so that's what we did then. And what we saw is that indeed these feedback loops 
are altered under the influence of, um, of psychedelics or LSD in particular. And what we saw is that indeed the thalamus is not necessarily able to gate information as precisely as it does um, in you know, normal um, waking states. But um, there is indeed more infl uh, information flow to certain areas of the cortex under the influence of, of psychedelics. And the importance of that finding is, first of all, well, obviously this model is not completely wrong. But on the other hand, it doesn't seem to be entirely true either, because we have also seen that um, the cortex does not just... Um, let, let information to the cortex um, basically float freely, but um, what it does is that it um, gates more information to certain areas of, um, of the cortex. In our case, the region that we looked at was the um, posterior cingulate cortex, which is also involved in the default mode network and is also involved in processing of, for example, self-experience. Mm. So these types of areas, they receive more information, whereas other areas do not receive as much information. And, you know, this could be a very strong biological model of you know what is actually underlying the psychedelic state and it could also explain why the state is not necessarily you know chaotic in its way but it is perceived as you know it has a structure um it usually is not completely comparable to schizophrenia for example um and that could be because you know the the uh, the thalamus is still you know getting information but it's just doing its work differently from, you know, normal waking states. Okay, and so you're talking about this loop and connecting these different parts of the brain and the thalamus being this, this uh, gateway. You know, I, I almost hesitate to say it, but I'm, I can't stop myself, like this door of perception <laughs> through here. Mm -hmm. And so it's, uh, it's almost like they're all connected like highways, like two-way highways. And when under the influence of LSD, sometimes traffic going in one direction has increased and then coming back in another direction has decreased. Mm -hmm. And it just, it's just changing the way information is flowing around this loop. Is that, is that what's happening? Exactly. So that is basically what's happening. And with the method we use in this study, we could actually look at directed... <clears throat> Sorry, we could actually look at directed connectivity. So we could tell how the information flow or is, you know, change between one area to the other. And we could also see at how the reverse pathway from, you know, area A to B, as well as from area B to A is changing under the influence, um, which is very nice. And this is something that allowed us um, a particular method, which is called dynamic causal modeling um, to do in this study. It's not necessarily the only study where we looked at functional or connectivity in the brain under the influence of LSD. We ran another study where we looked at um, a more, let's say, general approach, which does not allow us to make inferences about the direction of connectivity. However, it has the advantage that it allows us to look at the whole brain, which is not or at least um, for the time being, not um, not possible with this other method. So when we look at the the whole brain, what we see there is that we get this set, uh, saturation between sensory sensory motor and associative regions. And I think this is another part which is really important for um, for you know understanding the 
biological system level effects of um, uh, of, of psychedelics on the brain, um, because this uh, this kind of saturation between these two networks makes a lot of sense when we think about what psychedelics do, right? So there's a lot of sensory information, which is probably, you know, due to um, the thalamus not gating uh, information as efficiently as in normal states. Um, so we have this, you know, lots of sensory processing and these sensory areas are highly connected. Um, but then on the other side, we see these other areas, which are usually um, responsible for integrating this whole information that we receive from outside and inside. And they are much more loosely connected under the influence of psychedelics, um, which then means, well, probably we are just not able to integrate this, this sensory information the way we usually do, which then might lead to um, experiences like, you know, alterations in self-perception, alterations in, for example, time perception, but also experiencing the world differently than we usually do. Yeah, and you're able to see this in, in these scans. Exactly. So that's what we do um, when we put the people in the scanner um, under the influence of these substances um, and then analyze their, well, bold signal, yes. Okay. And it's really the, the mechanism behind all this are the serotonin receptors. That's LSD and, and psilocybin are interacting with these serotonin receptors. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. So LSD is interacting with a lot of receptors, whereas uh, psilocybin is a lot more specific for the serotonin 2A receptor. Um, that's why we in the LSD study had another substance administered to our participants before we actually administered the LSD. And this other substance, which is called catanserin, it blocks the serotonin 2A receptor. So basically when we then administer the LSD afterwards, it can interact with all the other receptors that it usually interacts with, but not the serotonin 2A receptor. And um, what we saw is that by blocking this one receptor, all the neural as well as the subjective effects of LSD were basically gone. So the psychedelic effects um, seem to be dependent on the serotonin 2A receptor. Okay. And these receptors, I don't know if it's something that you can even answer or if we know the answer, but uh, these receptors basically become you know, they become excited, they become doorways, they connect neurons and information flow. Do we, do we know or do you know or can you explain to us what the, the outward effect in the brain is from these serotonin um, receptors working properly and then working or normally maybe under normal conditions and then how it's affected under LSD or, or psilocybin? Does that make sense? It, it absolutely does. And I think this is actually a very interesting question because um, the reason why we are conducting this research is because we don't really know. Um, so a lot of our mm. research is actually aiming at better understanding what exactly activation of the serotonin 2A receptor does and how you know, activation of these receptors might be important, for example, in the treatment of um, psychiatric diseases or um, in um, you know, normal functioning as well. Um, so this is, that's why the question is so interesting because this is exactly what we're trying to find out with these studies. Okay.
Now you mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago the default mode network, and I, I've in in some of the studies it seems like there might be the default mode network might be connected to potentially you know the ego, but they also noticed under LSD some very interesting changes in the default mode network, like maybe even that it, it quiets down a little bit. So is this uh, CFTC loop and the, the observations you've made, is, is that related at all to the default mode network? Yeah, so um, in, um, in the analysis we did to look at these CSTC pathways, we included one region um, which is part of the default mode network, and this is the posterior cingulate cortex, which is kind of a really a key region um, in, the, in the so-called default mode network. And what we see here is that the PCC, the posterior cingulate cortex, is more strongly connected with the thalamus. So it seems to receive more information than it usually does. Um, I know that there are other analyses which, for example, show that the default mode network itself is um, more loosely connected than under you know, waking you, uh, normal waking consciousness, um, which kind of could relate to things like ego dissolution because we know that uh, the default mode network or the regions which kind of are involved in the default mode network are usually contributing to a coherent um, sense of, of self. So it kind of makes right. sense that something happens within this network. And we have now seen in resting state studies, but also in, um, in other studies where we had people do tasks in the scanner under the influence of LSD, that in particular, the PCC um, seems to be key when we're talking about alterations in, for example, self-processing or the differentiation between myself and others, for example. Okay. Um, and when you're talking about, in some of the, the studies here, you talked about LSD assign, help people assign meaning. And yes. I think the example was music. Although I had to laugh a little bit at the jazz, the jazz uh, piece to it, that the, 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 the quote meaningless music was, was jazz, which I know it would offend some people, but it, I, I enjoyed that. Oh, I'm so, absolutely aware of that. We had a second category as well, which was more, you know, very traditional Swiss folk music. And we had people mm. basically rate these songs first. Um, but a lot of people chose the, the free jazz um, as the, you know, <laughs> meaningful. Um, but, you know, if, uh, if there was a jazz musician in the study, they would have had the opportunity to go for, you know, very traditional Swiss folk music. Okay, so what what did you find out? What how are how are they assigning meaning here, and what what does that even mean? Yeah, so um, the well process that we wanted to investigate here was basically you know meaning attribute attribution, personal relevance attribution, and this is something that you know happens. Basically, every day, almost every second, we do that without necessarily even being aware of that. Um, so again, this is one of these processes, which is very hard to capture experimentally because, you know, you need to modulate it first. Um, so uh, one example for why meaning processing might be for example, clinically relevant is when you think about having a spider in your room, right? So 
for me, having a spider in my room, I mean, I would not necessarily like it, but it would not be particularly meaningful either. But when you think about someone who, you know, has fear of, of spiders, who um, has, has phobia, then this person would assign much more meaning to the spider in the room, which might actually lead to dysfunctional behavior in a way that, for example, he or she could not enter the room or would engage in, you know, dysfunctional activities like, you know, miss, uh, miss important talks or whatever, um, because uh, they can't be in the same room as the spider. So this is where, mm. you know, meaning attribution goes terribly wrong. Um, and through these kind of examples, we kind of first, we first realize how we attribute meaning to things when something, you know, goes goes wrong usually um and we wanted to understand this this process better and we knew that people under the influence of psychedelics often report that a lot of things were particularly meaningful to them so what we tried is to well find out what's going on in the brain when um when this happens to the participants under lsd and um we used music because um music is uh, is a really interesting stimulus for that because it can be incredibly meaningful um, to people, you know, even without the influence of anything. It can be super meaningful. Right. But on the other hand, it can also be really, really meaningless for if you, you know, find the right type of, you know, not particularly self-relevant or meaningful music. Um, and we thought that this is probably one of the few stimuli that, you know, can actually be modulated. Um, and so that's why we gave them uh, music in the scanner. And what we had is, so they brought their own music, which, you know, they indicated as being particularly meaningful to them. And we had um, music matched to, you know, their own songs, where we tried to, you know, basically copy the style and everything, but the participants didn't know the these songs. And then lastly, we had this, you know, category, which was at least in the placebo condition, not meaningful to our participants at all. And what we then right. saw is that LSD particularly enhanced the meaning or the attribution of meaning to these previously not meaningful songs, which is kind of what we aimed for. Um, when we started the study, we were also expecting that it might enhance the meaning of already, you know, very meaningful stimuli, but that's something right. we did not find. So what we find is a rather specific enhancing effect to things that were not meaningful in the beginning, which is, um, which is interesting if we think back about, you know, the example of the spider, for example, um, where, you know, meaning is attributed to something that, you know, should not be at least not that meaningful. So, um, so we basically found the effect that we were interested in. And then we also looked at what, uh, what is happening um, in the brain when this, you know, happens to to our participant. And what we saw there is also that, um, again, dependent on the serotonin 2A receptor, activity was changed in cortical midline structures, which again include the um, PCC as well as, you know, some other brain areas which are 
part of the default mode network and which are also um, often associated with, you know, self-processing and um, how we perceive ourselves uh, compared to, to the world. So I think that is particularly interesting because it, you know, for the first time, it kind of can capture the neuropharmacology and neurobiology of meaning making. Yeah, that's incredible. And when you talk about meaning making and, you know, previously we we're talking about uh, altered perceptions, it almost feels to me like, and this is going to get into a little bit of philosophy. Um, it almost feels like we're changing phenomenal consciousness with LSD. And when you, when you study that, it's kind of a philosophical thing, right? And they talk about qualia, what it feels like, like a feeling to see the color red or to see the color green or to smell coffee or whatever it is. You have a, a phenomenal feeling that goes around that, that, we can't really explain. That's what David Chalmers calls the hard question of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it seems like LSD's effects on consciousness, I feel like it's providing some insight into the phenomenal experiences. I mean, it seems like, um, like I saw the, the image you put up on one of your speeches of the wolf and like a wolf under normal circumstances. And then under LSD, you might see it in different hues or different colors and it might even start moving around and it seems like that's changing perception it also might change how you feel and now you're saying it might change the meaning you know you might have been afraid of a wolf at one point and now you see this beautiful wolf and now you love wolves you know there might be a, a different meaning there so what do you what do you think if you, do you have any thoughts on as you look at this and, and talk to your subjects and study this and did you have any thoughts on, on phenomenal consciousness and how that might arise from, from these brain functions? Yeah, that is, that is a very difficult question. Um, so I cannot give you a very clear answer to that. Um, but I do think that, you know, by changing our perception of the world, we make it possible to, to study this. I'm not quite sure whether this is enough to basically answer the hard question of consciousness. Um, right. But I know that people are working on this and I could imagine that psychedelics actually um, lead us away to get closer to this in collaboration with philosophers. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I wanted a clear answer. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> That's why it's called the hard question. And the only people that uh, seem to be able to answer the hard question are the people that say there's no consciousness anyway. It's just an illusion. So that's an that's a, a unexpected answer there. Thank you. Um, so what, in your studies of psilocybin and LSD and altered states of consciousness, what have you learned, if anything at all, about human consciousness and about, about how it works? Well, again, very good question. Um, well, first of all, I think it is very interesting that um, we can, you know, with, with these substances, we can alter consciousness in a way that people are actually able to report on that. And I think that is, that will give us, you know, 
a lot of insights into how consciousness works combined with, you know, the pharmacological studies we do and the fMRI studies we do or EEG or whatever brain imaging method you might want to apply, um, that we are, you know, step by step, which is really baby steps. But I think we're kind of getting closer to what exactly is involved, at least when consciousness is altered. And I think what a lot of people who are um, participating in our study might have learned is um, that, you know, by taking the substance, people kind of become aware that um, reality as they experience it in their everyday lives is basically more or less a construct of our brain that can be, you know, changed by stimulating one particular receptor in the brain. And um, I think that in itself is also something that is already very, very interesting. Yeah, and that's something I didn't even think to ask you is, you know, all the, the subjects that you've done to this. And, I, and I, I think I saw it because LSD lasts so much longer or significantly longer than the effects of psilocybin that you were able to put people back into the scanner for a second time. Um, so when you have all these subjects, have you communicated with them since? Have they reported back to you, even anecdotally, about any shifts in their their perceptions or their attitudes, their connectedness, or, you know, they come back to you and said, you know, hey, I'm still feeling this, or this has changed my life in any kind of a way. And I guess on top of that, were all these people first time, um, I don't know if user is the right word, but was it their first experience with these um, substances, or were some of them um, had experience with it? So uh, we include both in our study. So we don't include regular users, um, but we had people with previous experience, but we also had, you know, people who were um, exposed to these kind of substances for the first time. And um, anecdotally, I think that uh, for basically all our participants, this usually is an impressive experience. Um, we also collected data on, um, on long-term effects in terms of, you know, uh, changes in, in personality structure, etc. And what we have seen there and also a lot of um, other studies have seen is that in particular, the trait openness seems to be increased after exposure to psychedelics, mm -hmm. which is interesting because um, a lot of uh, or a long, long time, people have thought that these personality traits won't change over a lifetime. And here we see that with, you know, just one exposure to, um, to these kinds of substances, um, a trait like, like openness can indeed change. So, um, yeah. yeah, so I think um, even though we don't necessarily systematically um, record what people, you know, tell us afterwards, um, I think, you know, these changes in openness are quite clear and have been replicated in, in many studies. Interesting. And the other, the other part of that is uh, this, this, how it affects social interactions. And I think I saw you said something along the lines that LSD reduces the borders between the experiences of our own self and those of others, and thereby affecting social interactions. And I know that when you hear people, users of psychedelics, they often report back feeling connected to each other, connected to the universe, connected to nature, 
So what did you find in, in terms of this? And, and I found the, uh, the, the experiments with the playing with the ball and then not sharing it with the third party and making them feel rejected and, and the differences that they felt in their rejection between uh, a non-affected state and a, an altered state of consciousness. Um, so I'd like to hear more about how LSD does affect, you know, the, the social interconnectedness or interactions among us humans. Yes. So I think this is a really interesting and important topic um, because, I mean, social cognition is so fundamental in our everyday lives and it's also um, really relevant for clinical populations. However, we really don't know how social cognition works in the brain. And if we think about, you know, enhancing social cognition, most people just think about MDMA straight away. Um, so when we started this line of research, I was interested in, well, is that really unique to MDMA or um, is there something more to these anecdotal reports um, of, you know, feeling connected with other people and psychedelics as well? And um, that's basically when we set out to study, well, specific uh, specific processes like social exclusion processing, for example. And so first of all, what we found is that with LSD, we indeed see in the brain that when people either, you know, um, when they are within a social interaction, that the differentiation between themselves and this other person they are interacting with is less pronounced than in, in normal waking states. And I think this is quite interesting that we could actually show that in an fMRI environment um, that this, these anecdotal reports of, you know, the lines blurring um, between me and the other, that they are, uh, that we could actually capture this in the MRI scanner. And um, then we looked at, well, how does, you know, that influence social social interaction and what we saw there for example is that um, psilocybin is able to increase empathy with other persons um, which is pretty great because there are very few compounds um, that that are being tested currently that are that are actually able to do that and we know that you know the feeling of empathy is reduced, for example, in depressed patients, which then again, you know, can contribute to social mm. withdrawal, for example. So having a substance where we know that this can enhance empathy um, and, and getting closer to the neurobiological underlyings, um, I think is, is really important for, first of all, to understand how we actually produce empathy um, in the brain and um, also to eventually hopefully be able to um, treat patients who suffer from, you know, reduced social, um, social abilities or um, social withdrawal, for example. So this is one yeah. thing that we, we found this increases in empathy. Um, the other thing that we found is that um, people tended to react less to social rejection, which again is clinically important because um, the we know that well a lot of psychiatric patients are exposed um, to social rejection, and we also know that they react more strongly to social rejection than healthy mm. participants. And what we saw there is that. Um, so Saibin was able to, to 
well, decrease the emotional reaction to social rejection, maybe because people feel more connected to, um, to other people. And this could, again, be clinically very interesting. Yeah, it sounds like there could be a lot of um, clinical potentials here for different mental illness or different mental conditions, you know, from yes. depression to schizophrenia, I've heard so far. I absolutely agree. And I think on the one hand, you know, um, this tells us a lot about the pharmacology of these processes, which really might be interesting um, for, for clinical application. But it also helps us to really understand um, how the, the brain, you know, how the brain produces these kinds of feelings, emotions and, and processes, which um, I think is important to understand in you know, a world like we live in right now. Yes, yes, I agree with that. Um, when it comes to, to empathy and connectedness to other people, um, well, I guess I have one thought here that may not, may not be totally relevant, and then I'll go to the next question. I know that uh, people report back the, this connected feeling, and they feel that, that we're all actually connected, like maybe there's some great universal consciousness, and we all tap into it, and we're all actually connected. I don't think I'm at that point here, but I have talked to people like uh, Dr. Dean Radin who had, who has done experiments where it appears as though um, one person's thinking can affect another person's, you know, thinking. And I wonder if it would be thought, if it'd be worth it to do this um, social interconnectedness test that you did and then scan you know, one of the other people throwing the ball and see if their brains aren't somehow affected by the, by the subject's change in, in consciousness to see if, um, if there's actually something going on over there. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, um, I, I personally probably would frame it a little bit differently, but what I'd like to do um, is, you know, just having two people and look at the connection between these two people and how that changes within with psychedelics for example and there are approaches for this um, they are usually called hyperscanning um, that already look at you know connection or synchronization between um, between two people and I think that would be incredibly interesting studying that with psychedelics and I really hope to be able to do that in the future awesome awesome um, and so again talking about interconnectedness and, and a lot of the things here it feels like a lot of this is tied to, to ego, if that even exists. And so, you know, in your work here and all of this, what, what are your opinions or ideas on the ego or on self? Has that, have you changed your ideas or thoughts on that based on your studies? Um, that, is, that is a hard question again. Um, I, um, well, first of all, I think um, what, what, changed when I entered this field of studying psychedelics. Um, I think it is very interesting to see how under the influence of these substances, the ego or the self as we experience it normally, and we really don't usually think about it. It's just there, right? Um, how it changes with these substances. And, you know, again, that, you know, this is something that the brain basically provides us with this sense of self and um, how disruptive it can be when all of a sudden um, you 
lose that sense of self or you experience what some people describe as you know ego dissolution or ego expansion um because this is something that is so well fundamental for you know your sense of reality and your sense of you as a person that um it is really hard to imagine that when people um you know don't experience i mean there are many ways of how you can experience that, of course, via meditation, for example, um, or, or sensory deprivation um, and, and other induction methods. But um, I think experiencing how the ego actually changes, and this is not you know, a construct that um, is, is just there, I think that is very impressive. And I think that it makes a lot of sense and it is really important to um, further explore what exactly the ego is or what exactly the self is and what the biology of that is to more or less understand, you know, everyday human behavior as well as, um, well, behavior in um, clinical populations. Um, and I don't think we are yet there so we can, you know, really capture it. Um, philosophers might be a little bit more than people in neuroscience, but um, we're not quite there yet, but I think it is incredibly important um, to really understand it or to, you know, at least get as close as possible to understanding it. And I think um, research with psychedelics has, has taught me or shown me um, that this concept that we all, you know, kind of take for granted um, probably isn't and that we really need to understand how it works. Right, right, that makes sense. So speaking of future studies and things we can look at, what, what's in store for you? What are you working on now and, and what will you be working on in the future? So um, we're currently conducting a series of clinical trials with psychedelics, um, which you know, is, um, I think, very important and um, very interesting because, um, as you know, most people know, the studies, or at least the modern studies we have right now on psychedelics are um, most often not placebo-controlled, not randomized. So we, we have these first you know, hints that psychedelics might actually be clinically um, beneficial, but um, we still need to, you know, have these more rigorous controlled trials to be, you know, certain that um, these substances are indeed clinically beneficial. And this is something we're currently working on, but um, for me, it is also very important to understand why they do, because I think this is, um, this is basically a game changer in psychiatry to be able to really understand the mechanism by which um, substances um, or medication can be helpful because this is how we, you know, make a big step forward to, you know, develop more um, or better medication to develop more specialized medication. Um, maybe, you know, some patients will respond, others won't. It is, I think it's really important to understand that. So there's a lot of uh, potential for also basic, basic science to um, contribute to, you know, a better understanding of these substances and therefore hopefully better clinical outcomes. So um, these are some of the things we're currently working on. And again, we've already talked about this. I'd really like to 
understand their influence on social cognition um, better because I just really think this is such an important concept. Yeah, I agree. And is that something you think is a potential breakthrough in, in your field is really understanding that and being able to use it uh, you know, therapeutically? Well, at least that's what um, what we hope for. Yes. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's always hard to tell what exactly, um, you know, what will develop into something like a breakthrough. Um, I guess, you know, if we knew that before, we didn't necessarily have to do the studies. But um, I think if we, if we, you know, will be able to understand the mechanisms of, you know, how psychedelics can help, um, a brain which suffers from um, psychiatric illnesses and if we additionally can understand how psychedelics modulate social cognition and all of these things I hope will contribute to you know a breakthrough in psychiatry yes okay wonderful wonderful is there uh, anything else you'd like to share you've, you've provided us so much good information is there anything else I have not asked you uh, no, I think this has been pretty detailed, and um, I just hope it will be interesting for the listeners. Oh, yeah, it definitely will be. It definitely will be. Okay, well, awesome. Well, Dr. Peller, I'm so grateful for your time today, joining us here today. So um, just thank you very much. Thank you very much for the invitation. That concludes another edition of the Consciousness Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash the consciousness podcast at our Twitter handle at conchcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our feed at the consciousness podcast.com. Thank you for listening.